This podcast is brought to you by Catch the Fire Boulder, where we're more than a church. We're family. For more information about this podcast or other resources, please go to ctfboulder.com. Wow, it's great to be here in a Catch the Fire Church in Boulder, isn't it? Are you guys all staff pretty much? Or leaders in the church? Uh, ministry leaders? And uh, what do you do for them? We travel around the world and pray over the land. Oh, well, that sounds good. Yeah. That sounds yeah. pretty good. Uh, you want to go around and see who's here? Or? No, it's okay. Um, how many are on staff? Here. Here, yeah. You're on staff somewhere, I'm sure. Great. Well, it's good to have all of you and, and uh, all the church volunteers and people that make it all work. It's fantastic. Can we do anything about those lights, Steve? Like, um, um, yeah. Better. Keep going. Yeah, that's that's helpful. If I had a baseball hat, I'd be good. Anyway, we're really happy to be here. And um, we got on a plane eventually out of Tulsa and, and, and came up here late for the first meeting. But we got here. And I haven't been in Denver and Boulder for... Gosh, I don't even know how long it's been. A long time. But um, good to be here. And I th- I'd, I'd love it to be just more of a, I don't know, family feel, if you would. And, and I, I want to give you the opportunity to ask questions about what's going on and what, what do you think about this or that. But I felt, too, um, on my heart, eventually we could talk about things like prophetic symbolism. And uh, I think there's more and more prophetic stuff kicking off in the world right now. What does it all mean? For example, I was praying about the situation in Ukraine because we have 20 churches in that country and um, also some in Russia and one in Belarus, at least one. And so we're connected to these people in terms of our Catch the Fire family. And just saying, Lord, what's up with Putin? Like the guy's just being so ruthless and so irrational. What's up with that? And what I felt he said back to me was, I'm hardening his heart like I did with Pharaoh. And it's onto something. So that wasn't really comforting. Um, but the plan of God is going to go ahead. It won't be my plan. It won't be your plan. It will be his plan. And I don't think anything is going to change it. You know what I mean? How many know the Bible's got a lot to say about dire times coming? And none of us want to go there. We don't even want to think about it. We don't want to talk about it. We want to just pretend that 
oh, that's like a thousand years from now or whatever. But what if it's on our doorstep right now? So, but cheer up, there's, there's really, really good news, and the good news is Jesus is coming back. And um, so comfort one another with those words. So anyway, has anyone got any questions you want to kick this off with? Steve, have you got a question? Help me out. Start me off. All right. Hi there. My name is Joel. Joel. My wife and I help with a lot of the administration uh, that happens here. And one question we had was when there was this outpouring in Toronto. Right. And you were meeting every day. Did you still have church yes. on Sunday? Yes, um, we did. And then... How did it look? Did just people come whenever they wanted to, or were there some ground rules? How, how, did, you, how did you facilitate that? Well, we started off with our, um, our smaller church, which would absolutely max out at about 400. And so it worked fine for our congregation. And we would have like anywhere from 200 to 350 coming out on a Sunday morning. And then the revival started and we began getting visitors from everywhere and we're going um, seven days a week for, for a month or so and then we dropped Mondays and went six days a week. And, but our church family got really sick of all the visitors being there like two hours early so they'd, they'd come driving in, like the meeting was at 10.30, they'd arrive at uh, 10, 10.25. There's no parking, there's no seating. And you know, at, for the first week or two, it was funny. But uh, six months down the road, it wasn't funny anymore. And they're wondering, what happened to our church? This, I'm, I'm happy God's showing up, I'm happy for the revival, I'm happy for the touch that me and my family got, but we lost our church in the process. And I was desperately trying to find another one. And uh, we would rent a banquet hall, which was much bigger, but it, we couldn't have it on weekends. And so it was a very big problem. Fortunately, we had home groups, and we tried to keep them going. But there again, the people didn't want to go to home group. They wanted to come to the meetings where all the stuff was happening. So it wasn't without its challenges. And uh, we finally got our bigger place 10 months later, which was miraculous. And that's a whole story in itself. But anyway, we got it, and I roped off the center section for our church family and tried to give them priority. But that's 10 months later. So you can imagine. Um, how many want revival in your church? <laughs> so this is some of the things that go along with it. So if, if you can, have some contingency plans for a much bigger venue. Uh, we're ready to go. I don't know how that would work. But anyway, the Lord worked it out. And I can remember saying, Lord, please, we've got to have help here. And I don't want to be distracted by trying to find another building or even having to build a new place. Uh, we need a miracle here. We got that miracle. 
we've got our building on 272 Atwell Drive. And so we're on Atwell Drive, and it took me about th three years to realize, Atwell, huh? <laughs> Maybe that means something. You know, to prophetic people, everything means something, you know. So I was thinking about the other day, wait a minute, 272, 2 times 7 times 2 again, uh, 2 times 14. I mean, it all just works in, in interesting play. And, uh, and some people will just dismiss that kind of thing out of hand. But I think there is something to it because it was definitely a miracle building just in time. And otherwise, we would have had to start renting a hotel and just start renting a hotel ballroom six days a week. How, how's, you know, how's that going to work? But anyway, does that answer the question, Joel? Yes, thank you. All right. Anyone else? Yeah. Hi, my name is Jennifer. I actually go to Bridgeway, and the invite brought me up here. And I'm curious how you prepare for gatherings, whether it be this or... Sunday church, how do you prepare? Um, sporadically. Is that a good word? Well, when, when you're two, two meetings on top of meetings, I just like, oh, well, whatever, Lord, just put something on my heart and, and bring it to me. And I had to learn that before we even went into ministry. So Carol and I got married in 79, and in 1980, we took a trip to Indonesia. And we just went as a business couple, really, to see if we could help, maybe raise money, you know, give a testimony even. But they thought we were these evangelists from Canada, and they had scheduled all these meetings. And so we'd been flying for 36 hours. This little lady meets us at the airport. Here I am, you know. And she says, come on, we have to hurry. I'm like, what do you mean, hurry? Take us to the hotel. We are dead tired. Oh, no, we have to go to the meeting. And we're going back and forth with that. And I, and I finally said, well, who's speaking? And she said, you are. <laughs> so you're on. And in those days, if I, if I spoke somewhere, you know, you'd, you'd like a week to prepare and pray and seek the mind of the Lord and everything else. But they, they just, we were doing three sometimes. One day we did four meetings in one day. There was just no time to prepare for anything. And then you, then you can get diarrhea in the midst of it with all their food and water. And I mean, oh, that was a baptism in ministry for me, I tell you what. So you learn to, you know, when you have time, you really prepare. And that preparation hopefully carries you through. So my my preparation would look like when I'm home or when we have a day off, we're in the words, worshiping, praying, seeking God, reading books, you know, just, just kind of trying to be, I don't know, trying to grow in grace, I suppose. So when you're on the spot, a bit like today, uh, we had a late meeting last night and up this morning and drive over here and ta-da, here we go. And we just get right into it, but yeah. You're always wishing you could be better prepared, you know, because there are people who are better disciplined than I am, and they, 
manage to, you know, I got to get up at four this morning because it's a short night, but we're going to, you know. And, uh, yeah. So I hope it isn't disappointing. <laughs> yeah. Good question, though. Yeah. But basically, we need to pray and we need to worship and we need to seek him and, uh, yeah, pressing close to God. Yes, sir, back there. Hi. Uh, my name is Jody Corville. Um, I'm, uh, come here. Um, my question is, um, I, I, I kind of get concerned. I see a trend happening in most of the churches today uh -huh. uh, where time is a factor. 20 minutes of worship, 20 minutes of, uh, of preaching, and 20 minutes of you know, that kind of thing, you know. And to me, I think we lose a lot by that happening and I, I see that too much and it really concerns me um could you speak to that about time yeah usually on a, on a time const constraint would be on a sunday morning when you've got things going and so a church will grow and they'll fill up their building and then they got to go to two services and and that's when things start to get tight because you got a children's ministry going on and and those workers are up to here after an hour or so of that. And, and you just have to, there's a lot of factors to consider. And so therefore it has to be more regimented, like 20 minutes of worship, 20 minutes of, of whatever, and 20 minute message, and there you go. Uh, I think it's too short as well. I, I like a three hour service where you can worship your heart out and so but you got to do that during the week and so in Toronto we have like a Friday night which is much more open yes we have childcare, but by the time you get to Sunday it's at least two services and now you've got other other things and kids and all that to be concerned with so uh, but I don't say forget about worshiping him and, you know, find other meetings where you're not under those kind of time constraints. Yeah? And I don't know, what's the, what's the schedule here, Steve? We're wide open. Yeah, today you are, but I meant normally. Like, do oh, you do normally? just Sundays or what do you do? Yeah, we just have Sundays right now. And, but yeah, see, that's another it's factor. 10 to 12. 10 to 12, okay, so 10 to 12, but this week it's 9, tomorrow? No. No? Oh. <laughs> That's what I got at my schedule. What time's our flight, Rich? 1.30. 1 1.30. 1 we'll get you out of here. All right. I'll get you there. We got to get to Denver <laughs> by, I don't know, like, how close can you cut it? We'll, we'll get you there. <laughs> Yes. Rich and I discussed this before. But anyway, that's the problem. Busy, busy lives. And the Lord will come along and put things on pause like he did with COVID. And with COVID, you know, we get to sat, sit home for months watching everybody on Zoom. I was so Zoomed out, you just wouldn't believe it. You know? <laughs> but yeah, what an opportunity. I was on a Zoom call one time with over half a million people. And we, we set it up because the, the guy said, well, how many people do you want to speak to? I said, let's go for a million. 
And so in, in 29 languages, uh, we preached hope to the world because everybody was shut down. And we got everyone on there, Bill Johnson and Randy and me and Heidi. We we're all on there just cheering them on. It was, it was a fun thing. What an opportunity. So I think we all learned the importance of uh, Zoom calls and streaming and electronics to, to get, get it out there. And it's actually a fulfillment of that word in Matthew 24 where the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the nations, right? But, but then it adds, and then the end will come. Are you up for the end? Anybody? Mm. See, when you're young, you think, I don't want the end yet. Uh, I want to get married. I want to have children. I want to, you know. But when you're my age, you don't care anymore. It's like, let's have the end. Come on, bring it on. New bodies, are you kidding? You know, we'll just lose weight and all that. But um, he's going to return when he thinks it's right, not whether or not you and I agree. But I think the whole anti-message has been jaded by uh, the, the confusion over it, which is designedly obscure, um, so that we, nobody really knows. I, I don't think anybody knows absolutely for sure how it's all going to play out. But we're supposed to know generally the season. And I think we're there. I think we're in the beginning of the end. But my grandfather used to think that too. So, uh, But there's a lot of things that have happened that weren't true in his day. Israel's a nation. Jerusalem's their city. The gospel has been preached to all the nations. And clearly not every individual has heard, but all the nations have heard there's a, there's a Christian church in every nation on earth, a witness in every nation. So anyway, find a place where they give you more than 20 minutes. You know, there's uh, seeker-sensitive models going around. And we have a dear friend, he's like a father in the faith in New Zealand. His name is Seth Fawcett. Great friend, great guy. But he's just absolutely a drunk in the Holy Spirit. Just plastered. And uh, it doesn't take much to get him going. And typically, he'll have two of his ushers holding him up while he preaches. And, and he's loved around the country. And somebody said to him, well, you know, Seth, we, we love you and we love what you do. If only you were, you could be a little more seeker sensitive. And he says, well, that depends on who you're seeking and who you're being sensitive to. <laughs> I thought that was a great answer. Okay. Um, so my name is Taylor. I'm one of the leaders here. Um, my question was regarding the Toronto blessing when it had started. If you can pinpoint a time or the thing that happened, what was like the first domino to fall that caused everything to just fall into place? <clears throat> that would have been day one, January the 20, 1994. 
There were things leading up to it, prophetic words. Mark DuPont, back in the summer of 93, told us that there was a revival coming to us that would be like Niagara Falls. And uh, it would be powerful, it would breaking rocks and all kinds of stuff like that. And we had two other ones. Stacy Campbell gave us one, another guy, Larry, and some guy, I can't even remember his name. But we had prophetic words that things were coming. But, you know, you just kind of put them on the pile because I can't make that happen. And what are we supposed to do, you know? And so we went to, Indo uh, to Argentina in in November of 93, and we got a serious impartation there from Claudio Friesen. And that was following up on a word the Lord had given us. So I don't want to jump all over the place, but Benny Hinn's a friend of ours, and we'd been to one of his meetings in the previous year, so a year and a half previous, that started us really praying and we said, God, we have to have this. Because Carol came home from that absolutely incapacitated. And I'm saying, baby, just stay under it. This is what we want. Don't try and get it together. You know, this, we, we want this. And the Lord said, if you want this, I give you two things to do. Number one, I want your mornings. And number two, hang out with those that are anointed. And... I understood number one. I didn't really get number two until later. But he was talking about not just learn their model, study what they do, but catch the anointing, get impartation from them. And so we came home from Argentina, and I heard that Randy Clark had a similar touch from Rodney Howard Brown's meeting. So I knew him casually, and I called him, invited him to come. And as soon as he could come was January 20, Thursday night. And he came in, yeah, trepidation. Well, John, I don't know if anything's going to happen. And I didn't know either, but we just felt good about doing it. We'd had the words, but no clue that our world was about to change drastically. So that's the suddenlies of God, you know. You, tomorrow could be a whole new day for you, any one of us. Anyway, Randy talked. Worship was great, normal. The, the preliminaries, it was a Thursday night, small meeting, 120, 30 people in the room. And Randy gave his testimony and then said, so that's my story, but if anybody would like prayer, I'd be happy to pray for you. So just come up to the front. And... Out of character, people said, you know what, I think I'm going to go up to the front. And they started to make their way up to the front. And then it was like a bomb went off in the room. <laughs> Bodies are everywhere. People are under the chairs, between the rows in the aisles, rolling, shouting, laughing, shrieking, shaking. And I'm up, up, up there wondering what on earth has just happened. Because in Claudio Friesen's meetings are more or less orderly, one at a time. Benny Hinn's the same. Catherine Kuhlman was the same. I'd never seen a whole room get hit at the same moment. 
And yet that's what happened. And, we, and it was on. And so we just finished the series. Like he was there for the weekend, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. By Saturday, I said, Randy, you can't go home. <laughs> this, this is God moving. I mean, we, we have to have you stay. So we called his wife. Yeah, she, he can stay. Okay, two more days. <laughs> and, uh, and we called her back on Monday. said, Dan, he can't come home. This is God. And she's like, okay, two more days, but that's it. All right, so Wednesday, Thursday, Randy's going home Friday. Now what? It's over to you guys. And uh, we're like, oh, God, oh, God. Now what? Our evangelist is going home. And, but the Lord came in great power, and uh, it just kept growing and growing and growing from there. So January 20, 1994 was a very, very good start for that year. And uh, yeah, we went 12 and a half years, nightly meetings. Does that answer that? Yeah. People say, why Toronto? That I, I don't know. I used to say it's because the Blue Jays won the World Series for two years in a row. Of, uh, 92 and 93, so you know, the blessing came early in 94. But uh, seriously, I don't know. Anyone else? Oh, yeah. There's a lady right here. Hi, I'm Deb. Hi, Deb. My husband and I um, pastor an inner city church. Oh, yeah. So I'm assuming that you prayed and prayed and prayed for revival. All of a sudden, it's there. Yeah. How do you take care of you? Is self-care really, <laughs> I want to believe that it's a biblical concept, but when things explode and God is moving, where does balance come in? Well, that's a good question. We, um, we had learned about the inner journey um, through the 80s. And we went to Indonesia on a mission trip and got called into ministry. But I'd been to Bible school for three years. I just never found a way in. But after that, we started in Carol's hometown and practiced on those dear people, right? And through that journey, uh, I had a very interesting dream one night that kind of put it together. And uh, it was like, I went to a dairy in Buffalo, New York, and came home with three glass cream bottles full of the very best cream you, you, you can imagine. And uh, so Carol and I jumped in the car and went over there to the one church we knew, the Pastor Tommy Reed, who's still there, and, uh, but he wasn't there that day. And we met a guy named Mark Verkler who talked to us about his Bible school and curriculum about hearing the voice of God. And we realized that that was a significant dream. There were three elements that we needed. And uh, one was a revelation of the Father's love that we received from Jack Winter. The second was how to hear the voice of God and have intimacy with him. And the third was healing for the heart which we learned from John Sanford. And he had done a series of videotapes on inner healing and marriage. 
And at the time, I didn't believe in inner healing. But um, he helped us make sense of it and realize that they're not talking about psychology. They're talking about a continuing work of application of the cross for the needs of people. And so we worked through all those things, still holding on to salvation, of course, and baptism of the spirit and all that kind of stuff. But that was our journey in the 80s. And by the 90s, we, we quit doing two churches and just did the one in Toronto. And, uh, but we had all this behind us. So we trained up a ministry team uh, and had their hearts healed up in a measure. And they, they were ready to go. And so when revival broke out, we had about 150 trained ministry team people in both of our churches, Stratford, an hour and a half away, and Toronto, where we were. And so we believed that we're on three journeys, not just one. And those three journeys are the inward journey for you. And then next is the upward journey for him. And then your mission, the outward journey for them, for others. So it's a me, him, and them dynamic and me has to be filled up and replenished and healed up and, 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 and more or less healthy because if a person is broken inside, as many are, how can you go out and do the Great Commission? You know, you're, you're, you're a hurting person going out and essentially hurting others. And, and that's where you run into dysfunctional pastors. And what happens is if you don't get healed up on the inside, in a measure, I don't think anybody's perfect, but if there's not a measure of healing, then you get people pushing their gifting to offset the fact that there's these issues over here. So look how I can prophesy. Look how I can heal the sick. Look how I can preach. Or look how I can this and that and the other. And so you get people searching for significance in the public worship setting. And so we address all that stuff to this day. We're very strong on it. And I recommend a book called Search for Significance by... Um, what is it? No, it's not Victor Franklin. I'll think of it. Uh, search for significance because you have to get your significance from the Lord. And if you're trying to get it from your, your job or your position in the church, then you tend to push those giftings hoping that it will offset the stuff in your life, the wounding. And so you see evangelists that are very gifted, but they've got these string of affairs on the side. Robert McGee. Robert McGee, thank you. Search for Significance by Robert McGee. That, you know, we sold so many of those books that he came to our church to seek 
who we are and what was going on. And uh, I think he's a Baptist guy or something, but it's a really good book. Part of to answer your question, just knowing John, all their leaders throughout, they encourage all their leaders throughout all of Catch the Fire to close to once a year going through a week-long inner healing where you go away, and they have all kinds of different people all over the world that do it, where you go away for a whole entire week and you do just an intensive inner healing for one or the both of you, and they try and do that every single year for their staff, correct? Yes, except to say that the week-long thing might be just one or two of those, but the rest of the time it's a tune-up, which would be a day or two maybe. And so, but it's pretty intensive what they take you through. Yeah. And like Rich shared, one of his had 17 pages of things he had to address. Yeah, so the objection to inner healing seems yes, to. Which one you were using? Is it oh, which the one? We use Restoring the Foundations. We, we use John and Paula Sanford stuff still to this day. And then there's a whole bunch of them. There's Heart Sync, there's Sozo, there's this. They're all good, they all have a place. Um, and what you end up with is a bit of a composite, you know, a hodgepodge of everything. Um, but it's important, and the, the, a lot of churches really are strong against inner healing. And so you look for other terms, like, um, what, what, what else do we call it, Rich? But the reason is transformation of the heart. And it's, it's because people think, well, I believe in the finished work of Christ, so therefore you don't have to add anything in. Well, see, I believe that too, what Jesus did, finished it. But he finished it. That doesn't mean I'm finished. Positionally, everything's provided. All you have to do is go after it. And what that requires is humility, vulnerability, um, and I encourage everybody to go for it. And it's, in fact, Carol, my wife Carol, mandated, like, we do not hire senior team ever until they've firstly gone through a week of some form of inner healing that we would agree is, is good. And so consequently, uh, there's two things from that. We've never had a major split or problem in our senior staff. And uh, Jeremy, who we started out with over 30 years ago, still with us. He was our main worship leader for years. Now he has his own church an hour north of Toronto. Steve Long has been with me, him and Sandra, 28 years. And just so on and on, like the team. Now some of the others have moved on, youth leaders and so on, but, but they didn't leave hurt or angry for the most part, you know? And, uh, and yet whenever we've made an exception, like we're desperate for an accountant, we've gotta get someone in there to take care of things, and here's a nice Christian person, let's just bring them in, and they promised that they'd 
take the school and go through the healing of the hurts and everything, but somehow never got around to it. And guess what? We had a problem with them. And so those are the kinds of things that we did. But um, you've got to have all three journeys in balance, time for you, you. You get healing, you get impartation, you get training, you get equipping, you get more and more Bible knowledge, your theology gets worked in so you're, you have a sound doctrine and, and you have no trouble signing our statement of faith because um, you believe in it, right? And that's the inward journey, which is a journey including sanctification where you and I have the privilege of growing uh, to be more and more like Jesus. Isn't that great? Right. One last question, I think. Okay. Um, Go for it. I'd really appreciate hearing about yours and Carol's, one of your greatest challenges and how you overcame it in your ministry, as well as one of your greatest joys. One of our greatest challenges. I don't know. We've, we've just had more fun than should be legal. <laughs> the challenges are like we need a bigger building. We've got to have this and we need money, you know. But the Lord has just been so good. He's provided all that. And uh, what was the other one? One of our greatest joys? One of our greatest joys is raising up sons and daughters in the ministry that are ready to take it on. And so we transitioned into giving the church to Steve Long, who's a son and a Sandra, a son and daughter to us. We love them dearly, they love us. And Steve's had Toronto Church now for, I think 16 years. We gave it to him that long ago. And Duncan has had the, the, the movement, Catch the Fire, uh, how long has it been, like five, six years? Maybe longer. I'm trying to remember, because we did it in a couple of steps, and each time was official and all that, you know, but he, he has it. And so when I, when I transition, we, we do it, but I'm around holding their hand if they need be. And I've never been a threat to any of them, you know. I, Carol and I have had a place of honor. Duncan left out and left and went to Raleigh to start a church there, and it became our American hub, really. And uh, yeah, so we're hugely welcome to go to Raleigh too, and it's just been great. So that's our joy, the the successful succession, just blesses us to no end and, and see the movement healthy. Rich woke me up early the other morning, and said. Duncan wants you on this call with Sri Lanka. So we had a church in Sri Lanka that just joined Catch the Fire. And they're all excited, and of course they want to hear from me and stuff. And I'm like, I don't even know what I said. It was like, hi, everybody. <laughs> but, um, but it's joy, isn't it? It's joy to see the kingdom expanding. All right. One more. We got one more, John. One more. driver. Oh, yeah. So, John, I do want to ask this question. I, I don't want to draw up further need for inner healing for you, 
But when you came across those instances where somebody didn't catch the vision or didn't want to be part of it, that was part of your leadership team or your inner circle, how did you deal with that? Well, like I said, Carol, Carol mandated that for them. And so um, if they said no, they had to deal with her. And you know, she's, she's like the velvet hammer. <laughs> but, but I don't think anybody did because we kind of led the way. And um, I, I told a group somewhere recently that um, I just felt it was a good idea after talking to Jack Frost. Jack said, well, I go every year for a tune-up just to check up on my own heart and see how I'm doing. And I'm like, wow, that's a great idea, Jack. I think we're going to do that. And so we asked around, where do we go, Elijah House or this or that? And our counseling department had recommended um, this couple uh, who had restoring the foundations. And so I said, great, let's go there. They probably won't find anything, but if they do, then great, you know. And so, boy, they found things all right. Yeah, share a story, Rich. I'm having dinner with John and Carol in their living room, I mean in their kitchen, in their home in Toronto. And I was telling Carol, you know, I'm going through some struggles. And uh, she goes, well, Rich, we can take care of that. And Alan McDonald walked in and joined us for dinner. He's the counselor up there. She goes, Alan, come over here. Rich is coming in to see you tomorrow. <laughs> so it was, you know, it's like, oh boy. <laughs> you know, but that's how much the mandate was. This is what you're going to do if you're going to be part of this team. And I'm so glad that she did that. So I think it's a high priority because if you don't get your heart healed up, <laughs> uh, it will just either produce negative fruit or positive fruit. And I want, I want negative fruit. I don't want negative fruit. I want positive fruit. So that's Carol for you. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't really, Rich, but uh, <laughs> it, it doesn't surprise me at all. If, if anything she got on, it was like healing of the heart. It just was her niche. And because uh, I, I brought home those, those uh, cassette videos on inner healing and marriage by John and Paula Sanford. Because I went into the Christian bookstore in town and I said, what have you got for a leader's retreat? Because uh, we're going away and I just want to have some content to bring before the people. And so he says, well, we just got these in. Why don't, you, why don't you check this out? And it was Sanford's on inner healing and marriage. And so I took them home, quickly whizzed through them. Yeah, that would be fine. Well, Carol got going on them and she's like, wow, yes, this is fantastic stuff. And, and she got really, really in interested in it and then decided she was going to go, I think it was their three-week school that they did, three weeks. 
And uh, all right, she went off to Washington, D.C. or somewhere and, and had a three-week school with the Sanford and came back, you know, different. Did you go to that same one? Oh, later on. Okay, right. Well, um, now nothing will do until I go to one. And, and I'm like, babe, I get up in the morning, okay? I, I work, I, you know, I'm functioning here. And the, and, and the people that you work with, these people are non-functioning for the most part. And so I don't need that because I didn't believe in it really. And, and she, she, you know, in her own winsome way, she just persuaded me, what would it hurt? And I want you to understand where I'm coming from and so on. So I'm, all right, okay. Well, I went locally to one of their counseling teams had a um, week at a retreat center nearby. And oh my goodness, they were starting to make sense. And I realized that one of my issues, that the first one I got in touch with was this fear of intimacy. Uh, I didn't know where it came from or why. I could track it down a bit better now, but um, it was like everybody's friend, but so close, no closer kind of a thing. And, uh, and I even had that with, with one of my two girls, the oldest one. And so we always had this you know, congenial relationship, but it, it wasn't like it should have been. Uh, so when I landed home that weekend, Carol's like, oh Lord, I hope, he, hope he, I hope he had a good time and good things happen and whatever. She's just on the edge about all that. And so I'm, I met her and, and she meets me at the door and says, well, how was it? And I thought, it was fantastic. It was really, really good. And she's like, ah, she went off in a dance around the room. Thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus, you know. Well, then, no sooner we got in, when my daughter was living next door at that time, and she just came right over, and all of a sudden, floods of tears. Oh, Dad, I don't know why. I've just never felt close to you like I want to be, and I'm so sorry, and I just want to be, be closer to you. And, you know, it just kind of blew my mind. Like, you mean, I dealt with my own fear of intimacy, something broke in the heavenlies that set her free as well. And I'm like, this stuff is, works, you know, this is amazing. So that was my introduction. And uh, yeah, it, it doesn't happen overnight, but um, you owe it to yourself and your family and friends. Go and get a week for you every now and then, and ideally go as a couple. Right. Amen. What do you hear the church? What do you hear the spirit saying to the church right now? And what are you gleaning from people around the world? What's going on? Um, there's a whole lot of movement in the church globally. People are moving back home, moving out, moving in, around and about like there's just a whole lot of movement, and this is 
within the local church, within the nations, and globally. It's like people sense that something is up, and they're not sure what it is. And what I think it is, is we're about to enter into the time of the greatest harvest the world has ever seen. I'm convinced of that. And I'm aware of Bob Jones's prophecy about a billion soul harvest. I believe that's, that's coming. And uh, I've had the Lord show me different visions, like a gigantic wave. And, and another one was the, the gridlock out in front of our church in Toronto, where two police officers there just throwing their hands up. This is hopeless. And what was happening was there were so many miracles happening in the, in the church that the city was coming from all directions. And, uh, you know, different things like that. One of the big drivers, too, is David Roos's prophecy. And I, I recommend you, you look that up. But David Roos at Catch the Fire Toronto, 1994. Um, you know David Roos, you guys know him? Worship leader. He wrote, Let Your Glory Fall in This Room and we will dance on streets that are golden and many, many great worship songs. Anyway, David prophesied at our first Catch the Fire conference in the big hotel on the airport strip, Constellation Hotel there, and we had thousands of people at it. There was 2,500 in the main ballroom and an overflow of another thousand or more um, watching on a screen. And it was unbelievable and scary, actually, for Randy and I because the whole place was on the floor laughing, screaming, shaking, rolling. And the hotel didn't know what was going on. <laughs> and neither did we, other than it was the Holy Spirit. We knew that, at least. And in the midst of it, David Roos prophesied, the spirit fell on him in one of these massive shaking prophecies. He went on and he said, if you think this is it, this is not it. I am merely growing up a plant that will go to seed and my wind and my rain will blow that seed to the ends of the earth and it will become the mightiest harvest the world has ever seen. And it was just so powerful and so anointing and I believe that word because it has gone to the ends of the earth. Even in our own movement, Catch the Fire, I mean, we're all over the world now with, I don't know what it is, 200 churches or more. And, uh, um, but I said, Lord, I, I need some verses of scripture to go with this. And so Jesus said the harvest is the end of the age and the angels are the reapers. Uh, okay, there is a harvest coming at the end of the age. Then he gave me uh, Acts chapter two, the prophecy of Joel. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Sons and daughters will prophesy, see visions, dream dreams, and on my servants and handmaids, I'll pour out my spirit, uh, says the Lord. and. 
whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So there's a massive harvest coming in just from that verse. And then from Revelation chapter 14, verse 14, Jesus sitting on a cloud with a gold crown on his head and a sickle in his hand, and the word comes from the temple in heaven. Now, reap the earth, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And it just says, and the earth was reaped. So we are going to see a harvest, massive harvest. And I think it will be on either side of the tribulation period, a massive group of people respond to the good news and the love of God. And then there's another massive group of people who need fire under their feet before they surrender. And so we have all these tribulation saints that are also going to be coming in. So I really recommend that you take the gentler route and um, just bring your friends and family on in right now, right? But that harvest is coming. And then it's not the end of everything. It's the end of this phase, but the beginning of his millennial kingdom. And so ask your pastor to teach you on the soon coming of the Lord and what all that means. And I'm sure he'll get it right. <laughs> all right. Well, I wanted to talk to you about uh, prophetic symbolism and manifestations because I just have a sense that you guys are tuned in to prophecy, intercession, and, uh, and the voice of the Lord coming to us. And see, what we have to make sure is that our, our dreams and our visions and our prophetic words uh, mesh with what is written in the word of God so that we don't get things coming down that are contrary to scripture. So that's why it says, prove all things and hold fast that which is good. And so none of our words or visions or whatever has the, the same weight as scripture. Okay, would we agree on that? And that's just not a thing that we've heard over and over and we chose to believe. There's sound reasoning and reasons underneath that. And the reasons are that you can prove the Bible. And you need to. You need to know that it's not true that there's, there's passages in here that are not inspired and that are corrupted and copied wrong and all that stuff. It's absolutely not true. But you have to be able to prove that, right? And so now you've got some homework to do. Now you, need to, now you need to find out about the Bible code. You need to find out about prophetic revelation, such as... Uh, that book called The Coming Prince by Sir Robert Anderson. And he was, he published his little book in 1894, The Coming Prince. He was the, the head of Scotland Yard in the UK, but a devout Christian. And he figured this out, and he did all the math for you. But the Daniel chapter 9, the, the word from Gabriel 
the angelic vision that Daniel had, he spelled it out that in so many weeks of years, Messiah the Prince will come. And, uh, and so he gave it right to the day that Jesus rode in on the donkey, proclaiming himself king. Now that's amazing. But from the going forth of the commandment that turned out to be Artaxerxes Longjabanus, the king of Persia, uh, he gave the order not to just rebuild the temple, that was Cyrus, and we got that one two or three times, but he gave the order to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And that set the starting clock. And exactly to the day Jesus rides in on a donkey. And you, 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 you follow that through, satisfy yourself that that is a valid prophecy. It was not written later, like some may contend. But it's even in the Septuagint version, which was written 250 years before Jesus came. So the Hebrew Bible and Greek. So prove it to yourself. And the, the one I, I like recently is um, this Russian guy named Ivan Panin, P-A-N-I-N. Came to America in the 1880s, went to Harvard, studied there, and graduated with a doctorate in something, I think it was English, but he was quite the scholar. And as an agnostic, pretty much an atheist, he, he was reading and studying the mathematics of the Greek New Testament. And, and he got saved through that. And I heard that, I went, what mathematics in the Greek New Testament? But Greek, like Hebrew, their letters are also their numbers. So A is one and B is two and so on. And he found this recurring patterns of sevens running through the entire Bible, both in the Hebrew and the Greek. And it proved to him that this is so supernatural, there's just no way. For example, there's seven verbs and 14 adverbs and 21 adjectives in a passage. Everything is a multiple of seven exactly. Then he would add the sum of a sentence. And as you sum the sentence, it would be a multiple of seven exactly. And so the precision then became absolutely mind-blowing. And you can get his book, too, on Amazon. And it's called uh, Bible Numerics by Ivan Painin. And Carol and I read that with our mouths open, thinking, what on earth? And you know, the annoying part, when I was in Bible school, that kind of went around. And the consensus was, ah, well, we all know you can't prove the Bible. You've got to take it by faith and, and so on. So this can't be right. And I went, foolishly went, yeah, that's, I guess that's true. And that didn't dig into it back then. So these are ways that you can prove the Bible. One of the greatest proofs is the resurrection of Jesus. And that's what got, uh, uh, what's his name, Rich, that film we watched the other night? No. no it, it, by Lee Strobel. 
Yeah, Lee Strobel. You know who he was, this Chicago Tribune reporter. And his wife got saved. He infuriated him. He's an atheist. So he set out to disprove Christianity. And he's a researcher, and he really did his homework. And he came to the conclusion, it's all true, and gave his life to Christ. Isn't that great? And what got him was the, 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 the resurrection. So these people would not just throw their lives away uh, based on some lie or other. It, it's it's got to be all true. Anyway, you've you got to start from there. The Bible is an amazing, amazing book that has been supernaturally protected. You've got the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know. They found all these books that are 2,000 years old. And, and the book of... of uh, uh, Isaiah, intact, word for word, exactly like yours in your Bible today. And they have the Hebrew one right there in Paleo-Hebrew. So it's incredible to me that um, that's there, but I'm so glad it is because you got 40 different writers, a number of apparent contradictions that are opportunities for you to dig in and find the treasure. So that's that study. So underneath that now, we want to move into prophetic symbolism and things that you can test by the word of God. But Jesus himself said that uh, every jot and tittle, that means a jot is the name of the Hebrew word for uh, I, the small, little, this looks like a little comma, and a tittle is the calligraphy on the side of the Hebrew letters. And so he's saying it's all true right down to the calligraphy. And it'll all come to pass. And then he doubles down and says, heaven and earth will pass, but my words will never pass away. And so you need to stand your ground and tell people, no, the Bible is true from cover to cover. Hell is real. Heaven is real. Uh, you must be born again. And all of the liberalism and stuff going around today is just ridiculous. And people don't, to, to, to this day, people in Canada and America don't understand the, the, the nut of the gospel. Why did Jesus have to die? See, he had to die to satisfy perfect justice. He wasn't buying off the devil or something. He was satisfying the Father and, in fact, his own sense of perfect justice. If we're going to forgive all these people, we have to have a basis of forgiveness. The debt has to be paid. And so Jesus, who's worth more than all of us put together, steps up and says, I'll do it. And he becomes a man and dies instead of you and I having to face the music one day at the end of our lives, right? What a, what a wonderful thing for God to do. And so John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would never perish but have everlasting life. Wow. What a king. Forty different authors writing this, this book the compilation, and there's no contradictions. 
And when you think you find one, you got some homework to do and you'll get an answer. And so it's because it was all written by the Holy Spirit um, speaking through people and making sure they got it right. It's incredible to me. So with that, let's have visions and dreams. And uh, we, we get a bit of a learning curve. Um, nobody's going to stone you for getting it wrong, I don't think. <laughs> but um, when you get your heart healed up, what flows out of you is much more likely to be a purer flow. Would you agree? See, if somebody's all plugged up with hurt, anger, fear, shame, pain, mistrust, and unforgiveness, and trauma, and we could keep going, um, that's going to color their prophetic words. Wouldn't you think? And so the more of the healing that you and I can get along those lines, the better it is for ministry, including supernatural visions and dreams. Well, what started me off on this was early on, so we're a month or two into the revival, and we were going to Europe to do a conference that we planned with them like a year or more in advance. And they wouldn't let us out of it, so we had to go. So I didn't want to leave. We're in the revival of my dreams. Are you kidding me? And, but they're like, no, the, the people have registered. They're, you know, we have to do it. So they prayed for us and sent us off as a team, Carol and I. And she, you know, typically goes out in the spirit and she's boom on the stage. And so we were on the stage and she's to the, my left, your right. And we had a guest speaker who was Mark DuPont. And so while Mark is preaching, Carol's there with her legs up in the air, running and banging the floor and, and yelling and carrying on. And, and people say, shall we move Carol? I'm like, nobody touches her. She would not do that for any amount of money. Nobody touches her. And so Mark was, you know, clearly annoyed. But anyway, he just pushed through. And uh, because, see, Carol was, they thought, embarrassing herself. And uh, maybe she was. But um, she was getting a visitation. And what happened was she was carried in the spirit. She's in this meadow with Jesus and, and they're, you know, they're talking and dancing around and he's putting flowers in her hair and all kinds of stuff. And then the next scene, they're walking along streets of gold in this amazing city and she's like, where are we? And then she looks down to see streets of gold. Wow, we're in the new Jerusalem and we're going to the wedding and sure enough into this gigantic banquet hall they go in, and as far as you can see, there's crystal and tables and silverware, and it's magnificent, and a bunch of beautiful people off to one side. Who are those people, those gorgeous people, Lord? She says, oh, those are the poor 
and the outcasts and the unwanted and the ones nobody cares about. And I've gathered them up to come to my, to my banquet feast. And she said, God, this is too wonderful for me. I don't know what to do with this. What do I do with this? And he said, get up and tell my people that the banquet feast is almost prepared. Now, this is 28 years ago, friends. Almost prepared. And I want them to be like the five wise virgins because now is the time to buy oil. Wow, so she scrambled to her feet and grabs a mic and just unloads all this on us. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this, this, this thing is going somewhere. This is not about people falling and laughing. This is, this is going someplace. Now we love the falling and the laughing part, don't get me wrong. But it just kept adding these dimensions, you know. And so I began reading that passage from Matthew 25, the first 13 verses. And it's about uh, 10 virgins who were waiting for the bridegroom. And while the bridegroom was delayed, they all fell asleep. And then at midnight, a cry goes forth. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. And they all wake up and the foolish say to the wise, give us some of your oil. And do you remember their answer? No. <laughs> and Carol was commenting on this. She said, how unchristian is that? But see, they, they were unable to give it because this is talking about their intimacy with the Lord. And go, go buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came and they went into the wedding and the door was shut. And so I knew there was something to this. And I, of course, knew it's an end time passage and it's telling us that there's a wedding coming up. You can read that in Matthew 22. I think it's verse 2 and 3. Uh, there is a wedding coming up. And Jesus is looking very much forward to that day and to his bride. And so Jesus tells the story. There's a great king who's preparing a wedding for his son. And all these people were invited, but they began to make excuses. Oh, I'd love to go, but I just bought a farm and I got to go check it out. And all these excuses. And it's primarily talking about the Jewish people where he came unto his own and his own received him not. But it also has an application for, for us. Because... These are all virgins which must represent Christians. But only half of them got to go. And that's a serious implication, isn't it? So one group is wise, they took extra oil. One group is foolish, they didn't bother. Uh, we won't need extra oil because he's coming real soon. Well, it turns out the bridegroom was delayed. And so now they ran out of oil. And by the time they go and get some, he comes and the door is shut. Well, then they turn up later, Lord, Lord, open to us. And he says, I don't know you. 
depart from me. Uh, go away. I don't know who you are. And so that was an interesting word study, too. I, I looked it up in the Greek, expecting the word gnosko, but it doesn't say that it uses the word ido, which basically means to see. I never saw you, but it has an intimacy context. You, you, you weren't in my presence. You didn't soak with me and worship with me and spend time with me. You were busy running your own life, maybe even in the ministry. So why would I want to marry you? You know, I, I married Carol because I loved her and she loved me. But if, if, if she was a career woman and, and I was number three or four on her list, that would have been a deal breaker. And I hope that would have been for you as well. And Jesus is like that. He's looking for a bride who really loves him and he's number one priority. You put him ahead of business, ahead of success, ahead of your home, ahead of your family, ahead of everything. He, he is top priority. Do you blame him for that? I mean, he's the one that bought and paid for us. And, and, you know, after all said and done. So he wants a bride who loves him. Carol's vision caused me to read that, that passage over and over and over. I read it so many times. I didn't want to miss anything. Why don't we turn to it? It's taken me a while to get to my, my point, but we'll get there. 10 to 12. What time do you want to quit, Steve? The kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps, took no oil with them, and the wise took oil in their lamps, vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. And all those virgins rose, trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you. Go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. So there's an admonition there for us to be sure to have that oil of intimacy in reserve. So don't always be running on empty but make sure that you've got some reserve. Well, I was reading this and came to verse 5, I think it is. Um, As the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And I stopped right there. And I said, God, I don't feel like I'm asleep. I feel like I'm more wide awake than I've ever been in all of my life. People are coming by the thousands to our church. They're coming from everywhere, England, Australia, Germany, U.S., Canada. I mean, everywhere they're coming. 
And, you know, we had over 4 million attend during that 12 and a half years. It was just unbelievable. And our team would rotate, take turns during the week and all that kind of stuff. But I said, I don't feel like I'm asleep. I'm more wide awake than I've ever been, having more fun than I've ever had. Seeing people saved and healed and blessed. And, uh, and he spoke to me and said, you are asleep concerning the message of the soon coming of Jesus Christ. And that went in me like a spear. And I realized I hadn't even talked about it for at least 10 years at that point. This is somewhere around 97 by the time that experience happened. And, uh, you know, I just got disillusioned with all the date setters being wrong and all the mix-up about who's right about what. And I just said, ah, come whenever you come. Let's just get on and build the church. And, uh, but he didn't want that. He wanted us keen and expectant for it comforting ourselves with these words. Okay, so I started to pick it up and began studying again, and what do I really believe about the return of Christ and on and on? And it was a couple of years after that when I was beginning to consider prophetic symbolism that he said to me, John, did you realize that if you had a stopped carol that day, like, you know, we need to protect her dignity or we need to be considerate of Mark who's trying to speak or whatever, your revival would have lasted about three weeks. I said, what? He says, yeah. Because I was painting a picture on her heart. I was drawing the blueprint on her heart about what I wanted to do in Toronto. And if you had to stop that process, I would have just moved somewhere else. And that shocked me, friends. The implications of prophecy and how, how you can miss it uh, just shook me to the core. The, if, if anything would shake me up, it would be the potential to miss what we've had all these years. You know how in life you have these near misses, but, but, but you didn't miss it. It connected. Like I almost didn't go to, to um, Argentina, but in the end we went, and it turned out to be a breakthrough time. And, you know, you can go on like that about what you almost didn't do, but you ended up doing and it was God, right? Anybody got those stories? Have you got those stories? Okay, well that shook me, that one, and I began to really, really start to pay attention. And I, I found out that the Bible is absolutely full of prophetic symbolism. I think the main one is a lamb representing Jesus. So we have the Passover. And even prior to that, we have Adam and Eve. They dress up in fig leaves, and the Lord says, no, that won't do. What does he do for them? Clothes of animal skins. Where do you get animal skins? You kill the animal and skin them. Yeah. Sacrifice. 
So the principle there is the innocent dying for the guilty to provide covering for them. And uh, that's a prophetic picture pointing to Jesus. Clearly illustrated in the story of Abraham and Isaac. I mean, what a story that is. Um, Abraham's 100 years old when Isaac is born. They're all as happy as can be. What a miracle. Poor old Sarah, 90 years old, had Isaac and bore him and nursed him. And Abraham's 100. Oh, my goodness. God, your word came true. And then, about 13 or 14 years later, uh, the Lord comes one day and says, I want you to take Isaac, your son, who you love, and offer him as a sacrifice unto me. You know, most of us have read that story and been bothered by it. Rabbis to this day do not teach on that to their yeshiva students because it sounds like human sacrifice. Abraham said, okay, all right, go to one of the mountains that I will show you three days journey away, one of the mountains of Moriah, and sacrifice him there unto me. And so I like to put myself in the story and think, I bet he didn't tell Sarah, right? Not a chance, he didn't tell her. We're going camping, honey, we'll be back in a few days. So off they go to, to one of the mounts of Moriah, which is the ridge that runs right through what is now Jerusalem. And uh, Calvary is the highest peak. And Zion is another one of those mountains there where there's, there was a saddleback between um, them where the temple was built and all that kind of stuff. But he, but the, but the Lord sent him to the very, very place that 2,000 years later, Jesus would die. And when does he die? Exactly on Passover. They didn't want that. They tried to, don't, don't have it on the feast day. There could be a riot. But Jesus took charge of that, exposed Judas, and said, whatever you do, do it quickly. So he ran out and said, he knows. We have to do it now. And so it all happened. And he died when all the other lambs died on um, preparation day. Fulfilled. Prophetic vision, lamb, like John the Baptist said when he saw him. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There he is right there. Wow. But it wasn't a sheep he was pointing at. It was Jesus, the up-and-coming prophet. And he dies right on Passover and fulfilled the type of the feast. And so it got me really going now about all these prophetic things. Now, just to save time, 1 Corinthians 2, chapter 2, verse 14 says this. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him, neither can he know them. They're spiritually uh, discern. So that's the first thing. Some of this sounds crazy to people. Romans 8, 26 is another one. The spirit makes intercession through us with groanings that cannot be uttered. And so when all this revival breaks out, we're dealing with 
people groaning and, and, and giving birth, actually. When Jack Winter came to his pre-revival, he had an intercessor with him, and this, this lady was groaning and travailing like she's giving birth to a baby. And I'm like, Jack, like what, what's going on? And he's like, yeah, this is, this is the intensity of her intercession. And I'm saying, I don't want that going through our church. <laughs> and so, yeah, the, this, this kind of thing happens to people, and it means something. And the funniest thing, ladies, is when it happens to men. I'll never forget being in England one time at uh, St. Andrew's Anglican Church in Chorleywood, part of London, and uh, there was this big tall guy in a three-piece suit, and they told me he was high up in uh, Scotland Yard, right? And didn't he just get whacked by the Holy Spirit? And there he is, just moaning and groaning with his knees up and on and on. And so I'm just standing there watching it, saying, more Lord, you know. And this guy came up, and he's standing beside me. And he had his hands folded behind his back. And he's just you know, watching and nodding approvingly. So I said to him, have you ever seen anything like this before? And he says, many times. I said, really, many times. Like, what sort of work do you do? He says, I'm a missionary doctor, and this man is having a baby. And I just thought, he, he gets it. You know, he really gets it. It's spiritually giving birth to something. So I said to the guy after he somewhat recovered, so what did you name the baby? He's all shook up. He says, I think I had twins, he says. <laughs> Okay, what, what did you name them? One was revival and the other was something else. But it's, it all means something. That's the point. The language of the spirit is visions and dreams. And I heard Cho say that many years ago. The language of the spirit is visions and pictures and dreams and revelation. That's how he communicates. And so we need to clue in now to symbolism, right? And uh, I realized after that that the basis of every language is pictures and symbols and dreams. So if I say to you, banana, what happens? You see a nice ripe yellow banana in your mind, most of us will, right? Or whatever the noun is, automobile, Door, roof, window, something. I mean, everything is, gives us these visual pictures for most people. And it's the basis of all language. And so God uses all these things to speak to us. So Carol uh, really got me going on that, right? So I began looking for it in Scripture. Now, there's two here. I won't take time to read them, but I'll just reference them. Exodus 17, 5 and 6, and then Numbers 20, verse 8. So in the first one, in Exodus 17, 5 and 6, Israel's in the desert, and there's no water, and the people are thirsty, and the animals are thirsty, and 
they're ready to, you know, stone Moses or something. And he cries out to the Lord, God, the people have got to have water. What do I do? And you would think that God would say, okay, get a hundred guys with shovels and I'll show you where to dig. But that's not what he says. He says, take your stick, your staff, and hit that rock right there and water will come gushing out. And if it were me, I'd be like, really, God? Like, they're going to stone me here. But Moses did it. He took that stick, that staff, and he struck the rock, and water comes flooding out. And there is a place in Saudi Arabia where you can go where that is still there. And a friend of mine, Ron Matson, was just there a year ago, and he sent me pictures, and we've talked on the phone since. And he's like, that stone that was split is all eroded from serious water pressure to this day. He says, I've never been in anything like it. Uh, it is an untouched uh, uh, an untouched site that has not been built on or corrupted or anything else. It's still there the way it was 3,500 years ago. Amazing. Anyway, they carry on for another months or years or whatever it was. They're out of water again, and they cry out to the Lord. And so Moses is like, Lord, the people are ready to stone me. We need water again. And he says, all right, I want you to go, but this time take your staff with you, but I want you to speak to the rock and, and ask for water kind of a thing. But what did Moses do? In his anger, he struck the rock a second time. And the Lord says, for that, you will not go into the promised land and you will not lead the people in. Well, whenever we'd read that, Carol would feel real bad for Moses, like, oh, poor Moses, you know. All he did was hit the rock, for goodness sake. And, and what chance do I have then if Moses couldn't even please him? That was the underlying thing. And uh, we found out that it had everything to do with prophetic symbolism. Because you see, that stick is not just any old stick. It's representing the cross. And that stone is not just any old stone. That's representing Christ Jesus. Remember that old hymn, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. That's the very rock that Moses hid in when the glory of the Lord passed by. That rock that followed them, Paul says. And so the, the prophetic symbolism is Jesus will be crucified one time. But if you need life after that, you simply ask him, and he gives it to you. But he must never be crucified again. 
So Moses violated that prophetic type and it had serious consequences for him. He uh, saw the promised land from a distance, but he never entered in until he met there with Jesus on the mountain of transfiguration. So he did get it, get to go in and Carol felt a little better about that. <laughs> Another one is 2 Kings 13. This is the story of the death of Elisha. And Elisha the prophet is dying and the king of Israel comes and he quotes his words, oh my father, my father, the chariot of Israel. In other words, what are we going to do? You're going to die just like Elijah did. So he says, go get a bow and some arrows. And so the king went and got a bow and arrow. He says, open the east window. All right, get ready. So he draws the bow. And then it says, Elisha put his hand on the king's hand. Now what does that mean symbolically? Here comes the anointing. This is not just a natural scene now. Something's happening here. Shoot! Out the window it goes. And then a proclamation. This is what the Lord says. Um, the arrow of victory over your enemies, the Syrians. You will strike the Syrians until you have defeated them. And then he says, now pick up some more arrows and strike the ground. And say, I don't, I don't see him picking up a handful of arrows and hitting the floor. I think he was to shoot them out the window, striking the ground outside like the first one. Strike the ground. And he did it three times and stopped. And now the prophet is upset with him. What are you doing? Didn't you hear what I said? You should have shot five or six times or more. And you would have completely destroyed the, the Syrians. But now because you've only done it three times, you're going to only win three battles. And that was the knock-on effect of a prophetic symbolic word that was given. And it determined historical uh, outcome, right? Now, how many have put that kind of significance in prophetic words? So you can't be half-hearted about some of them. And it's a bit of a struggle because, you know, both my feet are on the ground. And this stuff sounds like it's like way out there. And yet, when the Lord said that to me, like, if you had to stop Carol that day, which I had no intention of doing, thankfully, but just the mere thought of it, like, what? We could have missed this? Okay, how about one from the New Testament? Um, <clears throat> Mark 11, verse 12, 14, 21. Jesus is going into the city for the last time, or one of the last times. And it says he's hungry, and he sees a fig tree over there, and he's like, huh, fig tree. And he goes over looking for figs, and he sees nothing but leaves. You remember what he said? May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And they carried on. Well, the next day, Peter's like, whoa, the fig tree that you cursed is dried up to the roots. 
And Jesus says, yeah, I know, and you can do stuff like that too, basically. Didn't, didn't elaborate at all. But what is this? How many have read that and wondered, what? Anybody? Like, I'm like, that's somebody's tree, Lord. And, you know, it wasn't this time for figs, I guess, or whatever. But see, the fig tree is a symbol of Israel, prophetically. And he came unto his own, and his own received him not. So there was plenty of leaves, but no fruit. And so he's saying, no one will eat fruit from you ever again. And that whole thing died. And so from that moment, if you want life, you must go through Jesus Christ, the door. Because Israel cannot bring you life anymore. It, the, the, the typology has been fulfilled. So that's why we see now in the New Testament, Matthew 24, Luke 21, so on, the parable of the fig tree. When you see the fig tree blooming again, heads up, everybody, summer's coming, harvest is coming. Get ready. And so all of this um, symbolism is great. And, and I want to encourage all of, all of us, myself included, to keep a pad and stuff by your bed so your dreams, you can write them down and then you can work out later whether they're significant or not. But you don't want a significant one to just get lost. Because we are coming into a season where he's saying uh, prophecy, dreams, visions, revelation is going to increase exponentially, and we're, it's maybe our lives will even depend upon it in days that are coming, right? And it's incredible to me how more and more we need to be led by these things. I got the vision of the cream bottles that turned out to be very pivotal, and if I hadn't have gone that next day and met Mark, I, I don't know if we ever would have clued in. So let's all stand, shall we, and uh, just say, Lord, we want to present ourselves to you and be candidates for the river of God to flow and have visions and dreams and revelation. Now, where are those of you that are prophetic people? You would say that's one of your primary gifts. Raise your hands. Okay, good. Well, I want to lift off of you uh, all the hurt that you accumulate by, by misunderstanding. It could be every now and then you get it wrong, but mostly leaders um, <clears throat> fail to see the significance of what's going on or can do, and therefore you feel like you get marginalized. Maybe. Anybody relate with that? One, two, three. Now, see, you're on your honor here, to live a, a godly, disciplined Christian life with, so you don't have your own issues sticking out all over, or that can negate your gift. So deal with your stuff so that the flow becomes pure. This is just to wind it up and bring it all together. But, but go for it. And let me have you come and stand across the front uh, if you're prophetic in that way. And we want to start off by blessing you.
Thank you, Jesus. First of all, I want you to say thank you, Lord, for prophetic anointing. Thank you that you do use me from time to time, and I'm really glad about it. Step closer to the front, if you would. Just in case somebody falls over, I want you to have clearance. <sighs> Lord, I thank you that you are raising up prophetic people in the hour in which we live. And I bless each and every one of them. And I say to you, come on, see visions, dream dreams, prophesy. We want to hear from you. And please realize that sometimes leaders need to hear the same thing three or four times before they have confirmation enough to say, let's go ahead with this. So if it's not acted on immediately, don't be put off. And I'm calling you to get your hearts healed up, every one of you. Go through a week of counseling and be honest about it and let the Lord go into those secret places of the heart. And if there's hidden sin issues, for goodness sake, deal with them. What are you talking about? I'm talking about like illegal relationships and pornography and theft or whatever, contrary to scripture stuff. But listen, we need you in the body of Christ. We need your gifting. We need to hear from God. And not everybody has it. Some have other gifts. So we bless you. <laughs>